It's the Kyle Hyman Show on Redeemer Radio. When Mary Magdalene presented herself, I thought this is perfect. She came to a place of burial in tears, just like the ancestors at St. Vincent's came to this place of burial in tears. She left it rejoicing. He's risen from the dead. And her words are, I have seen the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Flavor of the Week, brought to you by Banditos, fresh, made daily. In Flavor of the Week, Kyle sits down with one of our local priests to sample variations of a favorite food or drink while they discuss the ins and outs of life as a priest. Welcome back to Flavor of the Week, part three with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm here in his office trying some pasta that Cindy Black made for us. This is my bad pronunciation, then you can correct me. Farfalle with pesto. Yes. Farfalle. Farfalle. That is the Italian word for butterfly. Oh. So, although in the United States, farfalle is known as bow tie right. pasta, the Italians would, would see butterflies when they look at this noodle. I can see either one. You know, when you eat pesto, you're essentially eating springtime. <laughs> so, if the okay. norcina was, was eating fall. autumn, uh-huh. we are now going to eat bite springtime. into springtime. And we had breakfast earlier. We did. With a carbonara. Actually, this is more like eating summer. So the the, okay. the basil plants that have reached full maturity in summertime combined with the pine nuts, uh-huh. which by the way are harvested in Italy by pine cone tree shimmiers. <laughs> okay. These are these are guys are these whose whole job is just to climb up pine cone trees and harvest the nuts out of them before the cone falls to the ground and kills people or damages property. How big are these cones? These cones can weigh, I think, up to three pounds, maybe? Really? Two two pounds? Yeah. And when they fall from a height, <laughs> they can um, shatter glass, uh, and they've been known to kill people. Wow. So, Kyle, th- My we're, pine cones we're eating very, something dangerous. Very dangerous. Harvested yeah. from... The shimmiers. Yeah. Also with uh, pecorino cheese, some some garlic, olive oil, but the key is the fresh basil. Definitely summertime. <laughs> do you do this? Make connections with flavors and <laughs> feelings and. <laughs> Is, is that a common thing? Let's just say that I have a mind that is associative, which is to say I'm always discerning the interrelation of things, <laughs> perhaps more than but also like other you, people. You say you visualize your homilies. Yes. I don't know if there's a connection between the, the two, like this kind of association. Well... So when I get up in the morning, when I have breakfast, more often than not, the first reading of my day is poetry. And in high school, I hated poetry. Whenever it was an academic subject, I didn't understand it. But I've come to discover that poets are able to discern certain connections to things that I would have never come up with on my own. And the more poetry I read the more that's just how I approach reality. And it's very useful in preaching because it's essentially at the service of 
helping people discern meaning and interconnections in their own life. Hmm. So what kind of poetry do you read? The truth is I actually enjoy poetry that isn't heavy or particularly profound. I'm reading a book now by a a former poet laureate called Ted Couser, and I'm also a fan of Billy Collins. He's another poet laureate. Both of them would be very popular poets. So first thing in the morning before you do your As long as it takes for me to get through my oatmeal— I'm reading, I'm reading poetry or looking at art books just to fill my imagination with something good. Mm-hmm. And then only as the day goes on, maybe around lunchtime, will I read the newspapers, which of course challenge <laughs> uh, my imagination in other ways. Yeah. So this whole art appreciation, architecture appreciation, poetry, visual, when do you think that developed? I would trace it back to the sandbox. When I was a kid, I loved playing in the sandbox. And I would make sand castles Uh and sand cathedrals. So I had the whole church state thing (laughs) going from an early age. And I would basically still play in the sandbox even through high school. Hmm. Which sounds embarrassing, but it was actually a way to think through how to build things creatively. It's very relaxing. I had no idea that I would actually have the privilege of designing and building things. When my dad and I, when I was in sixth grade, went on a trip out east to Washington, D.C. and Virginia, we visited Thomas Jefferson's home, Monticello. I knew he was obviously wrong about slavery, wrong about religion, but he was an architect and had an appreciation of art. And that trip also influenced me deeply. So how he designed his home for the activities that were meant to go on there, rather than the home just being an empty shell. When I came to St. Vincent's, you know, to be able to design a rectory that's built for four priests and uh, six seminarians, you know, a home that really serves our mission, that was amazing. And then my first assignment was St. Pius in Granger. Monsignor Bill Schooler asked if I would help do the liturgical design of the new church building they were constructing. I thought it was a dream come true. So I worked on that for several years, right around the time that I came to St. Vincent's as pastor. And most recently, just building the oratory of Mary Magdalene, our perpetual adoration chapel, has been another just life stream fulfilled. So maybe we can take those one at a time. The rectory, I imagine there's a lot of parallels to all of us who have homes and yes. you know, families. What are some things that you would suggest people do to be intentional about, say you can't change the layout of your house? What are some things that we should be doing intentionally? Sure. But then I guess if people are building, like what are some things yes. that, that you could do? The first is just to recognize the truth that the home is an expression of the soul. So like the house in all of its details is both an expression of one's interior life and it's meant to be a support for it. So regardless of where one lives, it's possible, for example, to have a wall of graces. So in my study at the rectory, I have a whole wall dedicated to just reminders of times in my life where the Lord has blessed me in an amazing way. 
so that no matter what kind of day I'm having, I can look at that wall in that particular room and be reminded of God's providential care for me. So, for example, one of the graces on that wall, I have a photo of my meeting the doctor who delivered me as a baby. I I met him on Christmas Day. and How old? Probably at this point, maybe eight or nine years a priest. And as it turns out, he was uh, dying. My dad golfed with a friend of his, and their conversation led my dad to conclude that, hey, this guy delivered my son. So my dad told me, and I just showed up on Christmas Day unannounced Uh at the home of Dr. (laughs) Gonzalez, and his daughter answered the door and welcomed me in, and he had actually been away from the practice of the Catholic faith. And I got to anoint the hands that first held me. Hmm. So anyway, I have that photo on my wall of graces, of course, in a Hobby Lobby frame uh-huh. of an ultrasound uh-huh. <laughs> labeled our, our precious miracle. Um, <laughs> and just to be able to have that as a reference point in my home, it puts the craziness of each day in perspective. Another thing would be um, I have on my office wall, in fact, you're looking at it right now, a wall dedicated to the photos of all of my relatives, so my parents, my siblings, but then Uh my grandparents, uh, photos of my great-grandparents, and even great-great-grandparents, those that I have. Uh And I think especially for people who are married, to have those two family trees merged on the wall Mm -hmm. is a really important thing. So just to kind of describe this a little further to listeners, you have the family photo in the middle, and Correct. then I assume this is your father's or my father's side. Father's side on the right, on the right, yep, and your mother's side on the left. Correct. They branch out as they go to great grandparents. There's more, and there's yes. So my grandmother on my dad's side was a hoarder, and so she hoarded lots of family photos. <laughs> okay. So next to the photo of my grandparents, the ones who met at confession uh, and later married, there are the two photos of their parents. Uh-huh. And then next to those are uh, additional photos of my great-great-grandparents. My favorite photo, though, is of my dad as a little boy being held by his grandpa, by his father, sorry, my grandpa, uh-huh. um, next to my great-grandpa behind my great-great-grandpa. Yeah. So four generations of men that led to me. Yeah. All right. So have a wall of grace. Wall of family family. photos, Mm -hmm. and then maybe another wall of the saints, because they're actually our family in heaven. Mm -hmm. And those could surround a crucifix. So on my office wall, I I also have a wall of saints, people who've made me who I am. It could be saints after whom we're named. It could be our confirmation saint. It could be other saints who have just made themselves known to us at some point in our life. But that's just a reminder that our home is actually meant to be a foreshadowing of and a participation in heaven itself, the the mansions of heaven. And you like mount these to... A lot of times I just have the image dry mounted at a yeah. place like Hobby Lobby and then just tape it to the wall. I like it. Super cheap. All right. What about designing a living space. What did you do with the rectory? I feel like everything that you do is intentional. So it's not like you just, right. let's just buy some plans off the... So I asked the Lord if there were a passage from his word that he wanted to be the anchor of everything. 
And what came to me in prayer is the passage from St. Luke's gospel, the harvest is abundant. So we had a parishioner who was able to do some uh, vinyl stencils, and she made one with that scripture passage that's smacked on the wall of our living room. Uh Across from it is a a copy of a painting by Peter Bruegel, kind of a late medieval painter, and it's called The Harvest. Hmm. And it shows workers doing the actual harvesting, but it also shows them at rest and enjoying each other's company. So I thought, well, that's actually what our rectory is meant to serve. Hmm. It's meant to help us in our laboring, help us in our resting, and help us in our just being together. Mm -hmm. Then I got to thinking, well, what's the first harvest? Adam and Eve. That didn't go so well. (laughs) Uh, And then what's the final harvest? Well, last judgment. And so over the years, I've collected or have been given different depictions of Adam and Eve and different depictions of the Last Judgment. So those are around the house. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to make this seem like the house is a gallery of just religious art. A family gave me some incredible Hulk hands. And so those are on our kitchen windowsill. Hulk hands? Hulk hands. The Incredible Hulk. Oh, Hulk Big big green guy? Yeah. Yeah. They look like boxing gloves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so those are on our our windowsill. Knew with, you would appreciate with the Loch Ness those. monster. Right. Yeah. Okay. So some of it is just uh, yeah. just playful things that make life delightful. Uh-huh. So then the second big project is Saint Pius, which I imagine right. was a huge undertaking. I don't know how much of that fell on your shoulders. Well, they had a great architect in Jed eighty, but. Monsignor Schooler asked me to be the liturgical designer of it, so to provide a vision of what the artistic, iconographic, even architectural elements would be. And there, it came from um, St. Pius X, obviously a, a pope, successor of Peter, and his motto in Latin was to restore all things in Christ, kind of echoing the passage from the book of Revelation, behold, I make all things new. Mm -hmm. And so the decoration of the church revolves around just rendering artistically that truth of the promise made to Peter, lived in the life of of St. Pius X, of making all things new. Hmm. So I looked at different Italian churches from the area in Italy where Pius X lived, and also other elements from St. Pius X Church in Granger and put it together. But it's like a dream come true. Yeah. I did a Flavor of the Week with Monsignor Schooler. We did a whole episode just about the building of the church. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this if people want to go back and listen to that. But what were some of the things that you're most excited about with that build? Things that you put in there, symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism in there. Yes. So... I'm particularly happy with the painting that's on the triumphal arch over the altar. And it depicts Christ, the good shepherd, who is making all things new. And it's showing the flock coming to him from both directions and then various saints that are part of the mission of St. Pius X Parish. Anybody walking in there let's just say the 5th century, would recognize that architectural detail of the triumphal arch 
they would have recognized it instantly. And Christians of the 5th century would recognize Christ enthroned, would recognize the motif of the sheep, of other saints standing nearby. And yet, at the same time, it's new. It's meant for the 21st century. There are saints standing there who lived in the 20th century. John Paul II, Mother Teresa, Gianna Beretta Mola. So just seeing that juxtaposition of the old and the new just makes my heart sing. The highest compliment that I ever received from that project was some parents saying that whenever their little child, their little toddler would come in to the interior of that church, the child would wave at Jesus and the saints because the child intuitively knew that heaven was open for him. I think the mark of a Catholic church in its iconography, it should reveal that the church is an icon of the redeemed cosmos before it's a meeting place or some type of living room. It should also indicate in its art and architecture that the worshiping assembly is larger than the visibly gathered community. Mm-hmm. It includes the angels and the saints. But most especially, a child should be able to come in there and have all the questions of faith evoked hmm. and the beginning of the answers given. So every child should be able to point to all sorts of things in a church and say, what's that? Tell yeah. me about that. And there should be enough iconographic clues to explain. I think churches in our time were recovering from a period in which things were too empty and too abstract. Why do you think that was? I think after the chaos of the two world wars, World War I and World War II, I actually think deep down there was a guilt about beauty in the world. Hmm. I realize that would need to be kind of argued as a, a thesis, but I think people had their lives spiritually so bombed out, for example, after World War II, that in that huge rebuilding effort, there were more engineers throwing up things quickly for the rebuilding than there were artists who had been educated in a living tradition for them to make it new. And so, in a strange way, church buildings of a certain era, let's just say maybe the 50s into the 60s, many of them were actually built to last only a few decades and not built to last a century or more. And oftentimes, artwork is seen as the final thing. Unfortunately, people never quite get around to that. Mm -hmm. When in fact, if the artwork isn't the first thing conceived to help determine how a space is going to be organized, then it becomes an afterthought and just doesn't get done. So moving on to the oratory. Yes, here, how long has that project been in the planning stages, at least? Well, in one sense, for several decades. Uh-huh. When I was a seminarian and I came to St. Vincent's, I looked at that old graveyard and I said, Lord, if you ever make me a pastor of St. Vincent's, I'll see to it you're worshipped and adored on this site forever. Why the graveyard? So for people that aren't familiar, that's across the street yes. from the parish and the school. Correct. So why that spot did you think would be a good location? The for historic it? buildings of St. Vincent's churches were on that site. 
Oh, okay. Um, and the building had been used for a number of purposes, and the scouts at that time were using it as a haunted castle. And I just remember looking at the graves of our ancestors, just thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if that could be restored to worship again? Mm-hmm. What those early parishioners built, if we could find a way to have perpetual adoration, wouldn't that make heaven really happy? So then without even asking for it, lo and behold, Bishop Rhodes makes me pastor of St. Vincent's. Uh-huh. So I knew at that moment, well, the Lord took my prayer seriously. And gradually, I, you know, I just shared the idea and I essentially said to parishioners, if you want to make this happen, we're not going to take ordinary parish funds to make it happen. Um, anybody who wants to donate specially for this adoration chapel, that's going to determine the timetable. And then I had an insight that we could actually raise some of the revenue from the sale of burial plots and niches. Mm. Uh, so that also helped fund the project. So again, now you're designing a space for worship. So what were some of the things you knew you had to have? Well, every good work of architecture isn't a creation out of nothing. Uh It's the imitation of excellent precedent. Mm -hmm. So it just so happened that the 1904 church that once stood on that site was lovely. It was like a French Romanesque, uh, had some curves in the front uh, called Oriels. And I talked with our architect, uh, Bill Heyer, and said, you know, I'd, I'd like the elements from this old church to be incorporated in the new building. And we just got to talking. And he said, so Father, what you're describing is a feminine church. You want a feminine church? Hmm. And I said, yes, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> and at that moment, um, the name of the church came to me. Because I, I didn't know what patron it we yeah. were supposed to have. And it just hit me. Because it could have been St. Vincent's, right? You could have. Well, it's a distinct building, so it would be customary for that building to have its own name so that people wouldn't confuse it with the main church. Gotcha. But I went through all my favorite saints. None of them seemed to fit. And all the other names for Christ and Our Lady, uh, those had already been taken. So when Mary Magdalene presented herself, I thought this is perfect. She came to a place of burial in tears, just like the ancestors at St. Vincent's came to this place of burial in tears. She left it rejoicing. He's risen from the dead. And her words are, I have seen the Lord. And so if this building is going to exist for perpetual adoration of the Eucharist, well, everybody who leaves this building can be saying her words, I have seen the Lord. Yeah. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. And what is so amazing is that people who aren't even Catholic are drawn to this building. Hmm. And now that it's open, I've actually had people who aren't Catholic ask me if they could invite more of their non-Catholic friends to (laughs) see it and pray there. It just blows me away. Yeah. And we have Just people, because it's beautiful. They don't understand the Blessed Sacrament being yet, present. Right. Yet. But the building itself um, is meant to explain the Blessed Sacrament. How so? That's what good Catholic art and architecture do. So, when one walks into the interior of the church, the first thing one sees is the crucifix, 
but the crucifix depicted as the tree of life. So in the Middle Ages, it was a common motif to depict Christ crucified on a cross, which looked like the tree in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. So the fruit of Mary's womb is actually returned to the tree by sinful humanity, and that return fulfills all justice and makes the cross the tree of life from which we receive the fruit of redemption. So in any case, you walk through, the first thing you encounter on the floor of the vestibule is a, a serpent in seven pieces, and each piece is labeled after the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. It also evokes the seven uh, demons from which Mary Magdalene was liberated. So there's no way to paradise except by way of the vanquished serpent. You walk into the church, you see the crucifix, and then immediately below it, you see a gorgeous monstrance. Now, you might not know what a monstrance is, but everything in that building conspires to point your eye in the direction of the host in that beautiful display object. And Bishop Rhodes was gracious enough to donate, through the goodness of Father Phil Woodman at the Cathedral Museum, to donate this four-and-a-half-foot monstrance. It's Uh a monster monstrance. Yeah. (laughs) The chapel is filled with sacred objects that were used in other religious buildings and also newly commissioned works of art, like the Bible of the Poor, uh, 40 panels narrating the life of Christ, both in image and in biblical passages. So somebody who comes to the oratory can look at those pictures and those Bible verses and see the whole history of how God saves us by becoming flesh. Hmm. So it's, it's, you could spend a lifetime exploring the words and the images that uh, form the interior of that space. And because it's a perpetual adoration chapel, you're supposed to come back again and again. That's why it's so rich. It's inexhaustible in its meaning. So is that open to the public? It is. It's open from five in the morning to eight o'clock at night to anybody who wants to come. From eight o'clock in the evening through the night hours into the early morning hours, the oratory is only accessible by people who have an electronic fob. Mm -hmm. So we have that for security reasons. So for people who would like to commit to an hour of nightly or early morning adoration, if you come into our parish office at St. Vincent's, we'll be happy to uh, sign you up and give you a fob. You can also commit to coming to an hour of adoration by going to our website. By committing to a particular hour, you're actually making sure that there are always at least two people there so that we can keep adoring the Lord. Mm -hmm. But you can stop in anytime between five in the morning and eight at night for some quiet prayer. Did you have a hard time filling the hours? Um, The short answer is no. Um, I preached on it one weekend and mentioned it the next weekend, and uh, we had most of the hours covered Currently, we still need a few more people to be the second person to cover Mm. the early hours of Saturday morning and the early hours of Sunday morning. So if you're one of those people who can do that, we would really love the help. Well, I know you're also excited about Italy, and I feel like we could talk about architecture for another couple hours, but uh, we'll have to 
talk about Italy and try our fourth pasta here on the next episode of Flavor of the Week. So far here, we've got three down. Do you have a favorite? My favorite is the pesto so far. Pesto, okay. It's like eating summertime. (laughs) All right, well, thank you so much, Father Daniel Scheidt, for joining us for Flavor of the Week. Appreciate it. Great. For show notes on this episode and to find more shows, visit kylehyman.com. And until next time, remember to leave room for the Holy Spirit. Thank you.